Welcome to Beyond Multiple Choice, a podcast exploring the future of assessment. Here, you'll gain perspectives from international researchers, practitioners, policymakers, and innovators about factors shaping our approach to assessment in education and the workforce. In this episode, you'll hear from learning experience designer Allie Privet, who will be presenting at our November 2022 virtual conference. Listen to hear her approach for inspiring joy around the assessment process, along with areas where she feels teaching and training practices can improve to better meet learners' individual cognitive needs. Welcome to this episode of Beyond Multiple Choice. My name is Christine Hadid, and today our guest is high school instructor, learning designer, and educational consultant, Allie Privet. Allie has worked with over 2,000 students in her teaching career and has cultivated an expertise for designing learning experiences, on-the-spot problem-solving, and helping all students achieve success. Allie was also a speaker at our recent June seminar. We had a panel discussion on grassroots organizing around assessment reform and innovation. And uh, it was a conversation that was very interesting and far too short. So we're excited to have you back on to kind of continue that discussion. Allie, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Christine and Beyond Multiple Choice for having me. I'm very excited to kind of dive deeper into, you know, just what we started back in June and kind of continue that here on this episode. Awesome. So let's get a little personal to start because you have a kind of multifaceted role that you're in right now, obviously concentrated on teaching and designing learning experiences. So what what made you want to become a teacher? Is this something that your career has always been focused on? Or can you give us a little bit of an idea of the journey that led you to this point? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so my path to teaching is super nonlinear. And it has to definitely do with my multi-passionate, you know, ever curious mind. So name a career path that, you know, a young kid wanted to be growing up. And I was like, yep, I want to do that. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a judge. I want to be an archaeologist. I want to be a dentist. I want to like, the sky was the limit for me. And my parents just like actively encouraged all of my whimsical dreams. And so luckily, I was raised by teachers who were very patient and just really cultivated my curiosity. And my parents will tell anybody, like, I always had a million questions about everything. And I never felt like my questions were burdensome or like I was in someone's way. So that was luckily cultivated very, very young. All this to say that when I went to college and was pursuing learning, it was like this giant playground. And I switched my majors a couple of times, but I actually ended up triple majoring because I just loved learning that much. And so I have degrees in health science, biology, and chemistry, and I was planning on going the dental route. And that just didn't um, pan out for a lot of different reasons. And I actually was applying to dental school. Like I had passed the, the test and um, I just realized it wasn't what I wanted to do. And so I did AmeriCorps, which 
if you're not familiar with that, it's like the Peace Corps, but here in the United States where you do a year of service. And that kind of opened my eyes to public health. So that was the other area I was really interested in. And through that experience, I was working on various projects, one of them being in inner city Minneapolis with high school youth at an after school program. And I love their passion for health and, and advocating for themselves. And I kind of came to this conclusion that like I was meant to teach and I had to reflect back and think like, well, what would I want to teach that would keep this curious mind of mine occupied and be challenged enough? And so when I thought back to my college coursework and the classes that actually intimidated me the most was chemistry and physics. And so I went and got my master's in teaching in order to give myself the space to be ever curious, get to design and experiment on the daily and really cultivate. I just fell in love with the spirit of youth and their desire to continually want to learn. And that was like the right environment for me to be in that space and cultivate that curiosity at a formidable age for other people and spark their joy for learning. So I've always used the vehicle of chemistry and teaching to really just get people excited about the world around them because I love learning about the world around me. And I just picked the best playground for me to do that. Wow, that is really interesting and really a common thread that I see with a lot of the guests that we have and speakers that we have at our events who are so passionate about what they do. I I find that it's one of two things. Either they had some really great learning experiences and were really free to cultivate that part of themselves growing up, or they had really bad experiences that later they were able to kind of rectify or um, break free of in their adulthood that they want to make sure no one else has to go through again. So it sounds like you had the former, which is great. Yes, there's definitely like those two camps. I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, where you either had it really, really good. And you're like, I just want everyone to have this or you're like, mine was so bad. And I, I just want I want no one else to have this experience. I totally get that. Exactly. And just to connect, I also did AmeriCorps. I was a Teach for America Corps member, and that was a really formative experience for me as well. So that's interesting to hear that that you had a similar experience. And I'm interested to know, you do have training in education, even though starting out, you were kind of exploring a a different career path. You've always had this joy of learning. I'm wondering, because, you know, beyond multiple choice, we are focused specifically on the assessment aspect of learning, even though they're intertwined. I'm curious what the assessment experience was for you growing up and what your perspective is on the purpose that assessment serves in the learning process? Mm, Yeah. So that's such a good question. In terms of growing up, I I love the books. I love taking tests. Like I (laughs) literally loved proving that I learned stuff. So I can, you know, I was definitely your honors kid excelling in, in whatever people threw at me. But what's what's coming to mind when you ask this question is I actually had some pretty cool experiences in high school with assessment and even in college that were 
more divergent than the traditional route. And not ironically, they were in my science classes. They were project-based learning. I mean, I remember building a trebuchet and an energy cart and a home wiring project that uh, my dad helped me build in a door frame, a Rube Goldberg project, which is a uh, it's basically like mousetrap, but you have to build it with like everyday items. Like mine had like a cell phone in it and a power drill. All this to say that I think, and even in college, I had some really unique lab-based experiences around assessment. And this idea that learning wasn't just in a book, it was like out in the, the world and like doing stuff with it. And I know that that's something that I've always tried to craft in my own classroom is that assessment doesn't need to be a A, B, C, D, E letter choice on a piece of paper is how does assessment and how do we kind of connect what we're learning to what we're doing and how does it apply beyond a piece of paper or a numerical value? That's always been at the heart of what I have questioned about assessment. And I guarantee that me being exposed to variety throughout my entire life helped formulate that and cultivate that in my career and continuing now when I look at assessment practices. Mm. I love the image that you kind of painted about <laughs> – it's funny, you said you – loved taking tests as a kid and kind of showing what you know. And I found that experience as a teacher as well. It's it's kind of counterintuitive to this stereotype that I think a lot of us have of kids just not liking tests and not liking assessments. But in contrast, I, I did see that students um, even at a very young age, really do love to show what they know and to show what they've learned and to demonstrate the things that they've practiced. So it, it's it's interesting to see how human that instinct is to just be so excited to demonstrate your your progress and your learning and how our assessment practices really stifle that for so many students, clearly there's something misaligned there. And and I'm wondering, are you still in the classroom right now? So uh, up until this past June, the answer to that question is yes. I am taking a sabbatical year to lean into more uh, projects and, and consulting and experiences outside of a traditional high school classroom, look, working with universities and businesses this next year. So, but I'm just freshly out of the classroom. Gotcha. So when you were teaching high school science classes, did you have any issues with your students being reluctant or having assessment anxiety or were your system set up in a way where you saw the same enthusiasm that you kind of had as a kid for demonstrating what they were learning in your class? So environment is really critical, as any educator, classroom teacher will tell you. And I really tried to bring that joy to test day. 
And it would take some time for kids who had a lot of test anxiety and they felt like their life was on the line with a test to kind of release that. But that is something I spent a lot of time in my classroom rewriting the narrative with students and emphasizing that this test is a data point in a pool of thousands of data points that show me what you learned. So I would really ramp kids up and be like, today on test day, you get to show me what you've learned. And I am so excited that you get to show me what you've learned today. And I, I treat it like a show and tell because that brings back the joy of you getting to promenade across the walkway and be like, this is what I am bringing to the table. And there is nothing that is too small for you to bring to the table. And I, I would celebrate every win with kids. And so it created this environment where your score on a piece of paper does not determine your worth in my classroom. And so I, I can remember many conversations with kids and they'd be like, you think about tests differently, Miss Privet. Your classroom is like this different magical unicorn world where I don't feel so stressed. But um, I wasn't, I will say that that has been in the last like five years that I've really leaned into that more because I didn't like the doom and gloom feel of test day and or any kind of assessment practice because I I remember thinking back to how much I loved showing my learning. And so I realized that it had to start with me and me bringing that joy back and showcasing that any day is the day you're going to show me your learning. And it is fun to do. Mm. Oh, I love that. And bringing it back to that cultural experience and the relationship that you built with your students, I think is such an important thing to touch on because it, it really does go hand in hand with whatever assessment system is being used. And it sounds like w were your assessments generally more project based or did you rely on any kind of more formal exams? Oh, I had a, I, my kids know that I put them to work. Um, so I definitely had traditional, I mean, I, I teach an intimidating subject that is uh, for most kids, every everybody I tell, you know, like, oh, I teach chemistry, they have a reaction, like pun intended, like, right, they, <laughs> they have an experience with this class. And I really try and, and release some of that tension by making a little bit playful. And yet, I hold kids to a really high standard. So you can ask any of my previous students, they will, I, and I've gotten the feedback, I have the data and they say, you will work for uh, your learning in Privet's class. Like there are no days off. I don't show videos. Like, I mean, outside of something that's like graphically helpful, but so I, I mean, some of my tests do have multiple choice, but they have um, lab-based questions. I assess students formatively with timed um, homework checks and using technology that auto grades it. They have to self-grade their homework. Um, they, ha they have um, lab practicals. I mean, every day they're being assessed. And that's what I tell them. I'm like, your learning doesn't ever stop and you're going to mess up. Like you're going to give me quote unquote wrong answers, but that's where you're actually going to learn. And there's this giant sign in my classroom, it's right above the door. And it says failure is your first attempt in learning, which is a common phrase, but it's one that I lean into so heavily. But I mean, I gave them full written traditional tests. I gave them lab tests. I gave them every kind of test that they could, could have in order for them to show me their learning in a modality 
that reflected what they knew so I could pull it out of them. But I also recognize that they have to be good at traditional tests because for some of them, in particularly the science field, you're going to have timed multiple choice, hardcore tests that are high stakes that I also need to prepare you for outside of the bounds of my classroom. Mm, Wow. Well, you sound like you were a great teacher. And I'm really interested now. So from what I understand, you completed your graduate studies um, in education, and it involved some cognitive science and focus on experiential learning. And correct me if I'm wrong about any of that. But based on what you have studied around cognitive science and experiential learning, are there any things that you learned in the coursework that you think is missing from traditional teacher training and coaching? Yes. So everything that you described is basically what my master's project, action research project thesis that um, I did over the course of about a whole school year, um, but putting it together was well over a year of work. And what what the meta-analysis shows and what my findings were in alignment with what cognitive science and research talks about is this idea of cognitive load. And that element is something that I think would help so many in the educational space when you understand that when you're learning something new as a beginner, there is a high cognitive load for the student. And when I say cognitive load, it is what is the person thinking about and how much input can they take before their brain stops taking in more information. So this is where educators, you'll hear them say like, oh, we're going to scaffold. Well, why do you scaffold? Because you can't teach the whole skill. And I like to use the analogy of driving. So because most people can can think back to the first time they were in a car behind the wheel and you were either with a parent or you were in a driver's ed car where they had like that second brake and, um, you know, so they could like override if you missed something and we're going to do something bad in the car. At least I had that experience, but I can remember the first time being in a car and being like, whoa, there's a lot of buttons here. And, you know, the blinker, you have to look at your mirrors, you have to be doing stuff with your feet, your hands, your eyes. And there's a lot of physicality and muscles that are being loaded up and your brain is like having to think about all of those things. So guess what happens when you are trying to do all of those manipulatives and then also read road signs and react in real life to other vehicles on the road, your brain is in overdrive. And there are so many times when you're first driving that you miss a road sign, you miss a stop sign, you don't see the the incoming stoplight. And so you, you miss something because your brain is in overload versus when you have been driving for a while, you're not thinking about what your hands, feet, your eyes checking the mirrors, that all comes intuitively. So the cognitive load is significantly lower. Now, imagine that in a classroom when you're learning and teaching a technical skill paired with a vocabulary rich experience, you have to break that down. And what my research did um, for that year was look particularly at lab 
experiences, and then lab test questions. So what I found with assessment is that the first time I assess students in a laboratory setting where the lab, like the activities they had to do with their hands and the manipulatives of the equipment was technical, kids made very low connections to the classwork and what they were supposed to be getting out of the lab besides just manipulating the equipment. Forget observing anything and trying to connect that piece to the paper chemistry that we're doing. That wasn't going to happen. But when it was a lab skill that was repeated, so you know they're lighting a Bunsen burner, they're heating a test tube, they're doing something that they've already done, that technical aspect of manipulation, that part wasn't so high and technical. Their cognitive load they could then start actually looking at the stuff that we were doing and be like, oh, that's what, that's how that connects to what you were talking about in lecture. And that, because the cognitive load was so much lower the second go, we could actually get to the connection points that we needed to. And so if teachers, when you're an expert in a field, it's hard to go back to that beginner basics but you need to understand how a beginner looks, feels, and acts in an environment in order to successfully scaffold them. And that's the science behind scaffolding, but it's kind of the piece that I think is missing from assessments. And you may be trying, you may be frustrated with your kids because they're not understanding. And it's like, did you assess the cognitive load of the activity? Could they even input that much information with what you were asking them to do? And you can't look at it from your lens. You have to look at the data of what your students are telling you that they got out of the experience, the majority of them. So that's kind of something that I think is missing that luckily I studied for a year that has helped me in my own practice. Yeah, that is so interesting, but makes so much sense. And I'm relating it to some things I've been reading as well about some of the challenges with how much technology we've introduced kids to, especially since the pandemic, and the fact that there is oftentimes a a significant learning curve just in learning how to navigate the technology before you're even ready as a kid to learn from an app or a program, let alone take an assessment on it. And especially if you're a student who at home doesn't have a lot of access to those tools, you can sometimes be starting off at a disadvantage where the cognitive load is higher compared to another student who might have more resources and access to those things at home. So I'm making I'm making that connection and and what you're saying is uh, really profound. So now as you've you've taken all these kinds of rich learning experiences that you've had for yourself and that you've facilitated for your students, can you share a little bit about what is the framework or process that you've developed? Is it is it something that you can kind of share as a protocol? And how do you intend to apply that in other settings, like in your work with businesses and for other non-academic clients, let's say? Sure, sure, sure. Well, so the the practice comes back to, you know, a decade worth of experimenting with 
you know, how do people learn? Because that's really what my what my master's was on. And then my science background, you know, really the, my favorite coursework was, was in um, cognitive science and biochemistry and just like how does the, the mind work <laughs> aspects. And so the framework is, right, like I've used the vehicle of chemistry um, for the last decade to get people excited about the world around them. So that easily transfers to any other area of understanding basically key science principles of how do people learn and how do adults learn, you know, so if you're just training someone, you're holding a workshop, I mean, it can be in colleges too. So like professors aren't typically traditionally trained to be a teacher. Uh, They don't, they don't have that, that training. So they're really, really they're really, really smart. They're brilliant. The math, the words, the the history, the art, all of it makes perfect sense to them. But how do you distill that information and assess like, you know, is what you're saying? I always, I always tell people, you know, like, I'm not giving a lecture. I'm not talking to just you, Christine. I'm talking to however many listeners are on this podcast or experiencing this experience. And I am giving a lesson to however many people are a part of that. But if you're not aware that how you learn and how you intake and input the world around you, you don't recognize how other people might do that differently. And so it starts with the the process is understanding who you are as a learner and who you are as a teacher. That's like the main part of, of the framework, or I guess the process, the method of kind of improving a learning experience is one knowing kind of who you are and kind of your preferred modalities and then understanding that there are a lot more. <laughs> and when you work with the general public, you are, are, um, and I am just a naturally, I study people and, you know, how they input stuff. And what I found is, you know, you can say what you think is crystal clear information and everyone should be able to regurgitate it back to you. And it is this wild game of telephone that if you ever remember playing as a kid where you'd say one little sentence and then everybody would whisper it in the, what they heard to the person next to them. And it comes back like you, you were saying it you said to the person, it's raining cats and dogs. And they come back with, there are mice under the table. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, so um, when you start looking at the precision of language that you need to use in order to get an outcome that you want to achieve and like for highly technical fields, right? You know, if you're, if your clients, if you're the people you're instructing are off the mark, how do you get them back on the mark? And it usually is a kind of an audit of language and then a mismatch of, you know, what you're presenting versus how you're assessing. There's usually a disconnect where you think it's like super linear or the experience is super linear, but it's not represented in the data and it's you're not getting the outcomes that you want and you're like frustrated but you just literally don't know how to change it that's the work that i'm really kind of leaning into because it it helps everybody right like everybody benefits from a really well crafted learning experience and that's just something that i spent 
the last decade is creating this, this experience for my students that was, it was a whole, it was a whole story that every day was intentional. It was so funny because the kids would be like, what's the, what's the story we get to learn today? You know, like how does it fit in? And they could for the most part, like see where it was going. There'd be, you know, I'd tell them like, this is a part of the story that doesn't make sense yet. Okay. Like we haven't, we're building the foundation, but if you don't preview and prime people, then they don't know what to expect. And that's just some of the stuff that I work with people now um, and I'm leaning more into that type of work to kind of just help that elevate that awareness of how do people learn and how do you make it better? You're dropping some real knowledge and just really profound points. I'm thinking about <laughs> what you said about professors and how, yeah, there are so many smart people and experts who have knowledge and information that is really critical for society to advance. And but they're just they're not trained in this kind of stuff. It, it is a, a unique specialization in and of itself to be able to transfer and teach knowledge to other people. So I definitely see a huge need for that, both within classrooms for sure, but um, even beyond. So I'm, I'm excited that you're taking this framework that you've kind of developed and applying it in different contexts and really interested to hear how that turns out for you. It's my new playground, Christine, right? I needed I needed a new playground to to, to, to try stuff on. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure it, it's gonna it's so interesting being a teacher and especially when you're one who's committed to personal and career growth like you are, because I you're constantly teaching, but also learning. And, and that feedback loop between being in the learner seat and then being in the teacher seat is also a really interesting place to be. Definitely. And I just something you just said is, you know, you can be really brilliant and you can understand stuff. And so your, your input is really, really high. But so many of us in school and through the academic system spend, you know, decades of input with very little output. So your your skill set of outputting stuff that you've internalized and make sense of over years of time now, but you have spent and practiced no time outputting it and you wonder why nobody understands what you're saying. Well, have you practiced that for the last uh you know decade? Well, maybe not because but that's what I what teachers have to do is they have to get really good at output. What are you saying so that other people can input that information? But the learning journey from kids K through whenever they finish their formal education is an input-based system. And people don't think about it that way. And it's like, how much output did you have to do realistically every day at school? Five minutes to maybe an hour of your school day? Or was it mostly sit and get? Mm -hmm. So you got really good at input. And how good did you get at output? And those are two totally different brain systems that people don't even understand. Mm, wow. Yeah, that is so true. And the output is really where the value should come from, because at some point you're going to have to apply what you've learned. That's usually how you make money in the in the real world. And it it <laughs> yeah. is wild that we don't really get that practice until we've 
finished that a formal education system. So I'm with all of this, all of your perspective, which is makes so much sense. And it sounds so necessary to the conversation of how we reform and revolutionize our current systems to be more effective in teaching students and uh, really people of all ages. If you could design your own school of the future, there's no rules, no limits, just you can start from scratch and in, in designing what your own kind of school or learning center would look like. What would it look like? And what would assessments look like? Oh, man, like, <laughs> this question is just, is like the ultimate playground question, right? You dream up your, your learning experience. But the difficulty with this question is that it would be different for anybody you asked it to because how people like to to learn is extremely personal and where what what interests us what piques our interest. So when I think about, you know, designing a school, it it's certainly based around what lights that student up that they can kind of anchor their knowledge and reason behind why they're learning what they're learning. And that being said, I can't like, I also understand from my science background, how learning isn't like, it's not in a vacuum, meaning you can't like not assess, you do have to have some stakes. There isn't anything wrong with a multiple choice test at the right time. Like you want to obviously not unironically go beyond it, but there is a time and a place to to do traditional testing. But when I think about a school, I picture it a lot more out in nature and learning about the world while in the world, not so much in a in the rigidity of a classroom, which requires much more a uh, micro school model, um, project based models, competency based models with you know adults who understand learning theories and how to kind of progress someone forward, but not based on their age or, you know, where, where they're at in a, in a traditional model that we have now, but what are they showing and what are they asking for next? So developing student agency at a really young age requires a lot of freedom to explore. It's, you know, the more Montessori or even homeschool models tend to do this more just because they have the capacity to, because they aren't in a huge bureaucratic system that has all these regulations and rules that can stifle creativity or stifle, you know, they put limits on, you know, what you can cover and be based on time, you know, I mean, it comes down to to all of that. So if I could be super idealistic, you know, it, it, would be cultivating the joy of learning, contextualizing it and building upon it and assessing. I listed out some some ways to, to, to do that in my own classroom. It would just carry over into real life. You can create projects, you can create tests, you can assess and get data points on where someone's at in their learning in a myriad of ways, but it'd be very customized and my dream world, it would it would be perfect, of course. But yeah, that's where I would that's where I would go with this question. Well, that was a very packed 30 minutes or so. So many 
valuable insights that you've shared, Allie. And uh, I'm excited to go back and edit this episode and kind of re-listen to some of those nuggets. I think this is going to be really enjoyable for people to listen to. And and I, I love the vision that you left us with because it I, I think so many other people would be excited about learning systems and environments that look like that as well. And so that gives me hope that that might be something that we could someday achieve in large scale. But at minimum, I'm encouraged that you've been able to create similar environments in your own classroom and that you're now going to be helping others do the same. So thank you for all the work that you're doing in, with that and for sharing your insights on this episode. And hopefully we'll, we can keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. I love the, the deep questions that you guys have here and everything that you're doing at Beyond Multiple Choice. Oh, thanks so much for that. And thanks to all of you for listening. Remember, you can hear more podcast episodes and register for free for our, our upcoming virtual events at beyond-multiple-choice.com. 